Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Even with the recent pullback from recent highs in the middle of the pandemic, most tech stocks are up significantly year-to-date. This stands in deep contrast to certain sectors that have been grouped into what can be called the COVID epicenter bucket. By epicenter, we mean companies whose operations are undeniably and significantly impacted by the lockdowns. It isn't hard to guess what these sectors must include. Think airlines, retail, and of course, commercial real estate. As we sit here at the tail end of the summer of 2020, these sectors are lagging the market by a significant margin on a year-to-date basis. In this episode, we have a conversation with Andrew Garrett, who has spent more than 20 years in the commercial real estate industry and is currently Executive Director, Real Estate of Imco Investments. Andrew is responsible for overseeing teams of asset managers and expanding the portfolio with new development partners in major global cities. I have known Andrew for many years, and every time the conversation ventures toward commercial real estate, I always gain some unexpected insight from him. With that, thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. Thank you, Steve, for having me. It's a pleasure to talk with you and I look forward to the opportunity to have more of a discussion on real estate. Thank you. So how have pension plans and real estate managers changed their allocation strategies, especially with commercial real estate during the pandemic? That's a a good question. I I would say there is a there's a pre-COVID allocation and, and the trends for real estate have been pretty strong. Pre-COVID, allocations for real estate had been uh, historically as low as 5% for a lot of pension funds, and it's been creeping up towards 10 and some of the more aggressive real estate exposures or, or more real estate-leaning funds gotten close to 15 and 20% allocation. Even more so now with with where fixed income is and yields are, we're starting to see some allocations again, continually shift to real estate and infrastructure kind of seem to be put in the same bucket from a chief investment officer point of view. So then you hit COVID uh, as as most uh, investment and institutions get nervous, you know, what's our exposure? What's our liquidity? I would say through this process, I haven't seen anyone kind of publicly change their allocation targets. So if they had been looking to, over the next three to five years, increase their allocations, Uh, We've been seeing thematically a lot of institutional allocations looking at multi-residential and industrial as areas where a lot of funds wanted to increase. Uh, I would say that sentiment uh, from what I've seen is is still being maintained. There is growth and there's, there's demand in those market segments. And in retail, where there's been a bit more of a challenge, I would say institutionally over the last five years, allocations have been reduced or they've been looking at alternatives to help supplement the income in in retail. I I would say that's still kind of the same in COVID. There may be a a bit more urgency for some funds to uh, target retail allocations based on the current environment. 
that's at the big institutional level. So I like to look at it from a ground up approach. And you know, that's why I always appreciate speaking with you because I know that's your background and trying to make a, a macro bet that, you know, the institutions are making. I try to think of ground up, you know, how would I want to look at these asset classes? And, and from there, I see a significant amount of value in, in, in retail just because of its dynamism uh, and its structure. And, and I think it's, it's been unfairly punished from a volatility point of view. Office, I, I see the same. We can, we can get into that in different areas. Multi-res and industrial, I, I would say this COVID experience has helped them burnish their credentials as, uh, as being resilient, showing strong cash flows with the way that this particular uh, crisis is structured. More online shopping, more logistical needs, uh, people spending more time in their in their place of residence. So I, I think that type of stability is now looked at as attractively and we'll see more allocations uh, in these areas as, as some institutions see the challenges in the equity markets. So understandably, the epicenter type categories would be what you would expect, hospitality and retail, and of course, office. And we had this few months of lockdown, more on the ground zero as in everyone experiences it. With that, then the on the institutional front, the investments there or the trends have also reflected somewhat followed the resiliency of, say, the industrial uh, sector. But you see value uh, in the ones that are perceived as worst hit. So obviously, this confidence is coming from somewhere. And I know you're a very long-term thinker. So if you were to go out five or 10 years, which very few people are willing to try to look out, uh, what do you see? Yeah, I think this is this is an area to really compound wealth in these areas. I, I look at, we like to put real estate in buckets in terms of these asset classes. But at first, it is land and the highest and best use of land. So that's where I see a margin of safety in a lot of these penalized sectors. So a hotel that is you know, suffering from low occupancy, people aren't traveling, not having large meeting and conventions. So that's creating a, a significant impairment in short-term cash flow. And in uh, retail, we're seeing retail bankruptcies. Uh, we're seeing certain areas, especially in the U.S., where there's more retail square footage per capita than a lot of other major markets like Hong Kong or London. And so you're not getting a good amount of utility amount out of, out of the amount of retail there. But if I look at it just as a, a covered land play, and so that's my that's what gives me confidence from a perspective as a long-term investor, that if I'm able to secure land at the corner of Maine and Maine in attractive cities, that in itself has a lot of long-term value. I can create my future. I can create my future cash flows from a redevelopment perspective. And what I do know and what I believe strongly in is, is that people are attracted to major city centers, and I don't see that changing this long-term. Employers then are going to be attracted to being in these major city centers still, and everyone has a fundamental need to live, work, and play. Real estate provides a space for that. 
land that's well located provides a space for that. I think it's a bit short-sighted to look at, you know, hey, meeting conferences are canceled in 2020. Therefore, this asset should be discounted to 10 cents on the dollar. Same thing with retail. I think, hey, you might have a lot of bankruptcies in retail, but a lot of them are showing that they're collecting, even in what is essentially worst case scenario, you have a few months where you're getting 20 cents on a dollar or 30 cents on a dollar. But on a year-to-date basis, you're collecting you know, with a strong normalized January and February. And then going forward with a lot of retail open back up for the remainder of the year, I would say we're already seeing the most battered asset class in closed malls starting to collect in advance of over 50 cents on a dollar for rent. If that's the biggest beating you're taking in the worst months, don't think it makes sense to kind of project that, you know, five years out. I mean, following public companies, I can say that Q2 of 2020, that most companies just reported, that was the ultimate stress. You could survive that. I think it changes my view on how investable a company is. With COVID, how do you pension investors look at, say, the possibility of a strong second wave or third wave? Look at history, Spanish flu, and not to say that this is the Spanish flu or four waves of that across uh, two years. So how do you factor that into decision making? That's a good question. And, you know, from an investment committee and a board level, we have to factor in a second wave. We can't say... There's no convincing, I would say, a conservative institution that, hey, it's just not going to happen. This is a one-off. We have to present sensitivity that shows some longer-term impacts on the real estate. With that, we're still comfortable putting money into these sectors and also look at it versus other alternatives that institutions can look at. And we would look at the valuation. We would assume in the winter... Uh, there is there is more um, cases of COVID. Like we, let's assume that the back to school plans that are you know each of these states and provinces and areas are coming back up with isn't foolproof and and it creates more spread. What does that mean from a portfolio point of view? And I think as a, as a long term investor, it means that we're not betting hard on the second half of cash flow on the second half of the year. It means uh, we're stress testing it for the, the beginning of next year as well. We think a lot of finance risk. We, we also have to stress test. I think not as big for pensions because they're not, we don't have a lot of highly leveraged uh, assets in the public market. Some of the real estate uh, is, is more highly leveraged, but we've seen a lot of resilience in terms of restructuring loans. We've seen uh, with retailers looking at ways of uh, reorganizing. Uh, so bankruptcy doesn't always mean that, you know, all the retailers are going to close up all their shops. It usually means, hey, if I have 20 locations, I might start to re- rationalize it down to 15 locations or what have you. We think it's, it's punitive to take things from where they are to zero. And I think same thing on the on the office sector as well. There was a lot of noise initially from tech companies saying, you know, hey, we're going to People can work from home permanently. And, and then so, you know, some, uh, I would say some banks had even said, you know, we're going to look at, at this model as well. But at the end of the day, in real estate talk is cheap. And, and so not a lot of these, we haven't seen evidence of a lot of people disclaiming leases. 
a lot of tech companies uh, have actually increased and signed on to large leases in major cities in the U.S. Well, Facebook, I saw in the beginning of August, they signed an additional, I think, 730,000 square feet. And that was on top of 2.2 million, wasn't it, in Manhattan West? So there would be, I think, a prime example of a company stated that all employees could work indefinitely from home. And then they turn around and they actually uh, increase their footprint. Yeah, I, th- I think it's tough to imagine how you how you maintain a culture uh, for an organization and, and have everyone work remotely. So there are organizations that you know were born that way and and can kind of figure their way around that uh, and have you know annual get-togethers here and there. When we're talking, I think Fortune 500 companies and in the, the largest space users in global cities. I would say most HR departments would struggle to figure out, well, how do we, how do, how do we start maintain a culture? How does leadership interact with the staff? And, and it's important to think that, you know, over 50% of your staff could be early in their, in their career. That leaves them even less connected to your organization and turnover of your younger staff is a big challenge for large institutions. So it's expensive to recruit, it's expensive to train. And if that turnover ratio remains high, real estate rent becomes the the least of your problem. You, You lose innovation, you lose branding and that nimbleness that, that these large institutions rely on. There are a lot of anecdotes I hear around me. Well, my brother, for instance, he's a computer hardware engineer. And before COVID, he was only going into the office twice per week. But he told me that those two times per week were absolutely critical. A lot gets lost in translation. By the way, it's great that we have the Zoom technology or Microsoft Teams that we can get work done remotely. Apparently, a lot of things get lost in translation. There are emails where there's misunderstandings where a colleague says, yes, I do understand. And when you talk to them face-to-face, it turns out they didn't. Despite what employers are saying, employees can work from home indefinitely. When the pandemic does eventually disappear, they will pull people back in because of all the things uh, you listed. The culture-wise, and as there's natural attrition, how do you onboard employees you've never seen before? Right. Yeah, it's it's been really tough. And we've actually hired some people during COVID. And it's the same thing. We did interviews online and and it's it's tough to to onboard them and 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 get give them a feel of what this new organization is like them but they are important and critical to the growth strategy of of our firm and we've seen different sectors cycle in and out of more moving into downtown cores versus having suburban satellite offices and uh, or having campuses far out that's it's cheaper to, to, to manage. And uh, what we've seen over, I would say over decades, is no one's really been able to stay out of downtown cores for the long term. When tech companies started doing campuses in the suburbs, that's lasted for a while. And to your point, they some people have stayed at home. But after a while, uh, you know, if they rely on strong relationships with, again, large companies in the, that are heavily based in the downtown core, they need a presence there or else they kind of get lost. So a lot of those tech companies have found their way. We've seen it in downtown Toronto. We've seen it, as you said, in uh, in Manhattan. They are finding these locations to 
to be in the downtown and find it much easier to recruit talent when they have a downtown location. And, it, and people have felt that with the technology to be able to work from home, if you can work anywhere, you would choose to work anywhere. But migration patterns demonstrate time and time again, people are attracted to diverse city centers. And so that that is a, a leading reason that makes land and real estate in these areas uh, very valuable. Those are very, very interesting insights. So if we look at the prices of REITs of all sorts, they are still beaten up year to date, despite what the indexes have done. It, it's right. easy to find ones that are down 30 to 50% since January. Obviously, these prices reflect great uncertainty among retail investors. But with retail properties, landlords, they have tenants. During the lockdown, there's a lot of uncertainties uh, out there. And the general fear is that the value of commercial real estate could be impacted due to possible changes in long-term behavior of tenants. And when it comes to renewal time, one could say that a marginal decrease in demand could move the needle in terms of lease rates. I'm sure you could talk about this for days, but are there counterweights to these uncertainties uh, that long-term investors like you appreciate more than the layman? There's 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 lots of indicators we start to look for uh, in that in that lease renewal. Part of it is hey, just we look at subleasing, right? So are large companies that uh, have high headcount starting to rationalize and sublease their excess space to other people. And so we look at that indicator across um, global cities. And, and so we're not seeing uh, any, any of that happening. So we haven't seen a lot of subletted space, space come onto the market in the markets that we're, we're focused in on. And, and then to your point on renewals, definitely tenants can be in a stronger position to, to demand lower rents. But I, I think in certain certain markets, we're looking at talking about Toronto, we were have been historically at two percent vacancy in the last couple of years. So we haven't seen a lot any evidence that once people have adopted these rates that they're looking to renew long term at at much lower rates than they have before. I think they're they're making short term considerations but not long-term locking into 10-year deals at materially lower rents. And the other thing we're seeing is because re- office real estate has been so expensive in these city centers, they have continually rationed the amount of square footage per employee. Uh, so that's really allowed them to pack more people in smaller space because of how expensive the space is. And so one of the countering effects of this particular crisis is that well now open office plans and hot desking is a little harder to do uh, and, and people want more space so we're seeing where people would have leased space for 10 years and allowed themselves growth because anyone who's leasing on that like kind of long-term basis is saying well my employee base is going to grow by a certain amount of inflation per year and so I want to build for that and structure my lease around that. We've been shrinking down to 200 square foot per person, 150 square foot per person to 100, less than 150. And you're starting to get really tight. We're seeing this where you need to add safety, health and safety protocols that you're going the opposite way now. Now you might be starting to head back towards that 200 square foot per person uh, floor plan. And therefore, even though you have less people in the office, you still need roughly the same amount of space to manage through this crisis. And I would say even after the crisis dissipates, people feel, even with a vaccine, 
there's still going to be some psychological resistance expected to being really close or really packed in with other people. That more spacious floor plan is a a counterweight to uh, the perception of potentially falling rent rates. I would say that's probably an underappreciated insight. And actually, I've heard Brookfield Properties say something very, very similar, that a lot of they're getting a lot of calls from CEOs wondering if they actually have enough space, given the trend that you spoke of and having to give more square footage per person. Yeah, I, I think it wasn't too long ago, I'd say even just last year, that some downtown financial institutions were encouraging their employees to, to stay at home or have shorter work weeks, or they had densified their space so much. I've heard that kind of anecdotes that, you know, if you took a temporary desk space and you had a meeting and if the meeting was longer than two hours, you had to take your laptop with you just so someone else could set down and use that space for that short period of time. Or if you didn't get to work at a certain point of time and you didn't have designated offices, all the good spots were taken and, and you know, you have trouble finding space to work. So I think CEOs and, and others would be concerned really shrinking their footprint in, in real estate and, and think hard about doing it, shrinking the real estate or starting to move in, in more or less attractive locations. But some are, some are. And as I said, we, we hear of, you know, the counter to it. You mentioned a large firm, smaller firms may look at it and say, you know, I feel safer in a suburban location or a more satellite location where I have my own entrance and exit. It's not a high rise, it's low or medium, and I can control the environment much more. Some executives are are looking into that. But what we're not seeing a lot of is people trying to give back space wholesale, uh, saying that given this current uh, virus, we don't think office is, is something we need anymore. Long term, this is probably a good place for value. And of course, markets just don't like uncertainty. And we were talking before about second wave, third wave. We really don't know what's going to happen in the short term. But I believe, well, especially with long time horizon, in fact, easier to see what will happen in some ways. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think structurally, one thing about real estate is hey, it is long term and it is the land and the highest, best use on that land for that time. And I think what's missed in, you know, someone's scanning from a very quantitative point of view is investors don't really know what to do with land. Accountants don't really know what to do with valuing land. And so I'm always skeptical of the analysis and the projections people put on prime land in Hawaii or San Francisco or New York. And Mm -hmm. You know, hey, this is what was in the book value. So that's it. I'm like, uh, you know, I think the closer you are to real estate professionally, you'll understand there's characteristics that make something really attractive and really valuable over the long term. And it doesn't show up in a prescribed accounting method. It doesn't show up again. It's not going to show up in any of your free cash flow metrics either because it's, 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 it's non cash flow producing, but it is. I think one of the most underappreciated or undervalued parts of real estate. I think 
some analysts do point out, you know, hey, this is this is standing on good real estate and maybe we can start to sell it or this or that. I would say broad, more broadly, the land that is owned by a lot of these uh, publicly traded companies is significantly undervalued from a, I would say, a typical dashboard point of view. And it is more adaptable. So going back to retail and hotel, so you're saying if you start to, to make bets in these areas... Is, is that land really confined for the rest of its life to be that one, in that one category? You know, and, and so we've seen over time, real estate will adapt to what the market needs. And so if there's a lack of hotel room demand, can we start converting hotels to residential units or hospitality suites uh, or other things? Retail, same thing, you know. Is everything have to be fashion and food? Can we start seeing the non-traditional tenants show up there because they want to be in the center of things? You know, like we've seen car dealerships or uh, we've seen religious organizations move in areas. So there are a lot of non-traditional uses that can create cash flow, but don't fit well in, I would say, a analytical box that people can make strong projections on. But over time, that's what's going to happen to real estate. If for sure we don't believe certain sectors are going to recover 100%, you still own the you still own the dirt. Change it. <laughs> Change it to what yeah. people need. So it's more, is this area a magnet for people as opposed to, is this area a magnet for hotel rooms or is this area a magnet for luxury retail is is this a area a magnet for global talent is really the the strongest determinant of of what the value of land is well we're just out of time but that was very insightful andrew and thank you so much for joining us today I thought it was eye-opening to hear Andrew's perspectives on how retail and office properties have fared during the pandemic and how he looks at the durability of these asset classes from the viewpoint of an investor with a decades-long time horizon. I think retail and office REITs are currently an interesting hunting ground for value investors. My impression is that share prices of REITs are generally factoring in anxieties related to COVID-19, but not the counterweights that Andrew mentioned. In particular, the arguments for why the office isn't dead. For example, the likely reversal of the pre-COVID trend of densification within the office and the motivation of companies to serve their own interests that run counter to what Zoom meetings can accomplish, namely retention of talent and the maintenance of a company culture. Now, I'm not advocating that investors go out and indiscriminately buy up every REIT related to commercial real estate. In fact, there are many important considerations for each company that are worthy of evaluation. Financial strength, how the lease maturities of existing tenants are staggered across time, the quality of the properties, quality of the management team, and of course, valuation, to name a few. My point is that office and retail real estate is a valid contrarian theme with some sound merits. Merits that at the moment are being overwhelmed by market sentiment and that market sentiment is being generated by strong stimuli. For example, the personal experience of not being able to shop freely or experiencing fear of going back to a skyscraper. But let's revisit this theme in a few years and see how the publicly traded landlords show up on the other side of the pandemic. 
If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please don't forget to subscribe, like, and share with your friends.